Well, when you say aptitude test, I think we should clarify. Do you mean a BuzzFeed quiz where you like answer nine questions about your favorite ice cream flavors and then they tell you what job you should have as an adult? Yeah. They, I mean, you build a house and like pick the pictures of the room you want room by room. And then they tell you when your birthday is, what your favorite color is, when you're going to meet your soulmate and what your ideal career is. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hey guys, welcome to our final episode in the back to school series that we've been going on for the last few weeks. It's now late September, we figure kids are like fully back in the swing of school So we'll be moving on from the school theme next week, but for this week, we are still stuck in school and we are doing one of my favorite school-themed shows, favorite shows of all time in general, the Gilmore Girls. So we are going to be hanging out with Rory in her Chilton days today. We are going to be covering season two, episode 18 called Back in the Saddle Again. Yeah, lots of Paris, lots of... Louise, I don't remember her Chilton friends. Madeline and Louise are yeah. their names. Lots of Dean. Mm-hmm. Lots of Lane. There's no Jess in this episode. I know, it's really heartbreaking because I am reluctantly Team Jess, but still Team Jess. Okay, there's no Kirk, no Babette. Yeah. It no, was, no Taylor. Yeah, it's kind of a sad episode. We're missing a lot of the best like background characters that make the show what it is. But it's still a fun episode, and I think we have some good money stuff to dig into. That's right. So we're going to do just a brief summary of the plot of this particular episode. The basic overview of Gilmore Girls in general is just you have a mother-daughter who are only 16 years apart in age, scandalous, and they're best friends and sort of like go through life together. That's pretty much all you need to know. We did an episode early on on the pilot. Go check it out. We had fun. Yeah. So in this episode we have Rory working on a school project. And the point of it is to come up with a consumer product. And they have this imaginary million dollar budget that they can use to, you know, fake market this product, design it, produce the prototypes. And Rory goes to her grandfather and asks him to be their advisor for this project because all the students are supposed to have an adult advisor on hand. So that's pretty much the crux of the episode. That's like the key plot line that's going on. Richard Gilmore, who is Rory's grandfather, has pretty recently retired from his work in the insurance industry. We don't know exactly what he did, but he was some kind of like head of their international insurance department. And that required him to do a lot of traveling. He felt very important. He was very fulfilled by his work, seemed to really like it. Although I will say it's never clear exactly what kind of insurance he works on because we see him touching a lot of different things, which I think is pretty unrealistic. Um, But in any event, he has recently retired, kind of, sort of, against his will. He was sort of gently showed the door. They said, yeah, you're getting kind of up there in years, Richard. Let the new young whippersnappers come up behind you. And he's really struggling with that transition in life, moving to a fully, fully retired lifestyle. 
So I think that provides some fertile ground to talk about the early retirement folks, uh, many of whom we hang out with here in the early retirement capital of the world, Longmont, Colorado. And uh, yeah, we're going to have some interesting discussions in that vein. Well, Carla, why don't we jump into our first clip where we hear a little bit about just what you're talking about, Richard's uh, malaise, if you will, his uh, attitude around doing things in his early retirement days. Ask what? What did she ask? Oh, something for her economics classes. Nothing, really. That doesn't sound like nothing. What about her economics class? Is she having trouble? No, Emily. She merely asked me to participate in some uh, project at school, and I respectfully declined. You declined? Leave it, Emily. Why did you decline? Let's talk about it later, Emily. I'm uh, busy. Busy? You've been poking around that stupid engine for the last three weeks, and all it does is spray at you. You're not too busy. Emily, I'm in the middle of something here, and I don't expect you to understand it. You're not going to help her? Can we talk about this later? Well, I never thought I'd see the day. What day? The day Richard Gilmore would disappoint his granddaughter like this. Oh, Emily, please. So tell me, Richard, is this how it's going to be from now on? What are you talking about? I just want to know what to expect from you. Because the bouncing from one thing to another, the moping in silence in your den for days, all of that I accepted. But you're turning your back on Rory. I did not turn my back on her. You adore that little girl. She means everything to you, remember? Emily. Are you that lost? Pretty harsh. Yeah, it's quite harsh. So I think the kind of the main thing that Emily says there is, are you that lost? Like, have you gotten this far gone down this rabbit hole of sort of semi-depression that he's kind of struggling with after leaving behind his job. So I think what's really interesting about this, Rory comes to him and asks him to serve as the advisor for the school project. And he says no, because he claims he's too busy. He has tons of time. What is he talking about, right? He's just goofing around fixing this old car. Yeah, that seems to be the only thing he's doing. That's what he's doing when Rory comes to ask him. The car kind of reminds me of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, by the way. But anyway, it's this like very old car that he's working on. And he could easily just drop that project and go do this thing for his granddaughter, right? So to me, that is an indication that he is really struggling with malaise, I think is the best word for it, right? He's struggling to get motivated to do things that he otherwise would normally have jumped at the chance to do, right? He does love Rory. They have a great relationship. He loves economics. I think he majored in economics because later on we see him working as an economics professor. So he's definitely got a lot of experience in this field and yet he's saying no. That's so true. And it's funny, you talked about this in relationship to early retirement. I think this is relevant for any retirement Anybody who is leaving something that they've done, especially mental work more so than physical work, where you still have the the ability, or you, you at least certainly think you do, uh, have the ability to contribute in a major way to an organization that values you, and you've stepped away from it. It's kind of hard to realign what you're doing with your time and your priorities and, and your whole identity. So I wanted to talk a little bit about statistics on early retirement and mortality, because I think that's something that gets kicked around a lot. If you retire early, you're definitely going to die earlier because you're going to lose your will to live, right? You're not going to have a purpose in life anymore. That's what gets people up out of the out of bed in the morning. So, the so you primar- should work till you die. <laughs> yeah. So the primary study that seems to be cited on this most frequently was done by Shell Oil. And what they concluded is that if you retire at 55, you are 89% more likely to die than the average population 
within 10 years, which is a pretty startling statistic, right? That's quite a big jump, 89% more likely. But I think we have to ask ourselves a couple of things. One, what kind of retirement were these people having? Two, is it possible that some of these folks were retiring early because they had some kind of health condition? No, right? you're saying there might be a sample bias? I'm saying there might be a sample bias. What? That would make a lot of sense, right? If you're leaving a demanding job because your health just can't hack it anymore, then that would indicate you probably don't have as long to live as somebody who's going to be fully able to keep working until they're 65. Another interesting data point that they've said is that that correlation does not seem to stick as much if you're talking about people who are retiring from higher status jobs. So to me, that's there are several possible explanations for that. One is that if you've been in a higher status job, whatever that means to people, that probably means you're using your brain more than your body. Maybe you are someone who's capable of coming up with interesting ways to spend your time after retirement. It could also just be that you've got more resources, so you're able to spend your time in a more interesting and engaging way than somebody who's retiring from a lower income uh, position. So I think there are several possible explanations for that. Really interesting is that this seems to be more of an issue for men than for women. Women are much less likely to have earlier deaths coming from an early retirement. So I don't know what that says about men versus women. I think my intuition is that men are more driven by status and driven by achieving things in the world. And when you take that away from them, they have less of a drive to do other things. It's just a hypothesis I'm throwing out there. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm, I'm going to say if we're looking at people who are in their 60s now or for some study that they've done in the past the population of men who are working and women who are working it's it's nearly 100% for the men it wouldn't have been nearly 100% for the women many of the women as well also may have taken time off earlier in their lives like to raise a family you know we're, if we're honest with ourselves the distribution of uh, child rearing tasks falls unfairly on the women of this country in general and i suspect that many of them have had periods of under or partial employment where they've figured out how to have a filling life without the drive of a job yeah i think that's another possible explanation i don't know it's not something you could really drill down on and get a definitive answer on but i think these are valid guesses so the takeaway for people especially if you're in this fire mindset and wanting to retire at a very young age is to think critically and honestly about what your job means to you, what your position in the world means to you and how that's going to shift if your career is gone, if it's completely off your plate because you've chosen to chase this early retirement dream and really be honest with yourself. What is your time going to look like? How are you going to challenge yourself? Yeah, Richard's floundering. Emily's right. He does have time. He's being kind of selfish and ridiculous, letting his granddaughter down, who he adores. And it's, like you said, he is depressed. He's going through a malaise. So what should he have done? Right? He, he left this job. It sounds like he maybe didn't leave it fully on his terms. He certainly had the economic ability to walk away whenever he wanted to. But maybe he wasn't mentally ready when he left. What should he have done as he was preparing to exit from one stage of his life into this retirement phase in order to avoid this? My sense of things is almost everybody 
who retires goes through this kind of struggle, right? They walk away. Maybe you have grand plans of travel. You have these big projects that you want to take on. And at some point you realize they aren't enough or they get old after a while or they get kind of boring. They weren't what you thought they were going to be. They're more expensive than you thought and you can't contribute as much time or money to them as you originally anticipated. So it seems like a pretty darn common problem, but what could Richard have done? What could he have done differently in order to maybe mitigate that and have as good an experience as anyone possibly could have? Well, I think part of the equation here is what I was saying earlier, that he didn't really want to retire. He was kind of forced out. So maybe he didn't have enough time to really mentally prepare. But I think anybody who's starting to creep into their golden years, right? I would say certainly by the time you're in your mid-50s, 60s, you should start trying to project ahead and think about what life is going to look like without work in it. Because for a lot of folks, that's going to be either forced upon them through some kind of health condition, or it's something that they'll financially be able to do. So I think starting to think way, way early in advance about how you're going to spend your time, what are some challenges that you can give yourself because I think that's the big thing that's missing for a lot of folks, right? You travel, you, you know, maybe do some sort of like reading, watching television, these activities that are kind of passive where you're just consuming things that are being provided to you. Those are less fulfilling to people than output activities, right? Something is required of you. You've got to dig down into yourself and say, can I build this thing or can I help this person where can I take on this new task, right? So I think figuring out ways to challenge yourself over and over again and require something out of you is a critical, critical element. I think it's the difference between retiring from something uh, and to the difference of uh, uh, retiring to something, right? I think we've used that phrase a lot before. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't mean retiring to Florida. I mean retiring to something <laughs> specific, like something you're excited about spending your time on. And really being pretty deliberate about what that's going to be. If you just retire to get away from your work, or in Richard's case, because you sort of got nudged out, man, you are going to flounder. You are going to struggle to figure out how to, how to pass the time in a way that is fulfilling to you. And if you're not excited about what you're going to go do, you might go mope in your office for days at a time. Yeah, which it sounds like is exactly what Richard's been doing. Okay, well, we'll come back to Richard we're going to talk more about him throughout the episode, but we should deal with some of the other folks in the Stars Hollow community. Lane, Rory's best friend, she goes to a different school and she is going through her own struggles about what her life is going to look like in the next chapter. Sales, Lane. Sales. It's just a stupid test. Lane, Kim, you have shown a genuine aptitude for sales. It doesn't mean anything. Hello, ma'am. I see you're eyeing the new Whipomatic. Nice choice. This baby's right off the truck. And let me tell you, if you're looking for something to fulfill all your whipping needs, you've come to the right place. Because as Devo says, if a problem comes along, you must whip it. As long as you whip it with the Whipomatic. Wow, you are good. Stop it. I'll take two. I don't want to be in sales. You don't have to be. I want to do something cool. Sell refrigerators. You're not funny. Look, you're taking this aptitude test way too seriously. It's the fourth time I've taken it. It's the fourth time it's come up sales. Lane, in 10 years, we will be having lunch in Paris, and we will not be discussing whether or not you made your quota. Great, so I'm going to get sucky salesman? Changing subject now. <laughs> well, that's oh, a standard Lane. Gilmore Girls clip, right? <laughs> uh, quick zippy dialogue, right? Yeah, and Lane is by far one of the best characters in the show. I just completely adore Lane. So this brings up a couple of really interesting points, right? 
Question number one, are aptitude tests worth the paper they're written on or are they total junk? Well, when you say aptitude tests, I think we should clarify. Do you mean a BuzzFeed quiz where you like answer nine questions about your favorite ice cream flavors and then they tell you what job you should have as an adult? Yeah. They, I mean, you build a house and like pick the pictures of the room you want room by room and then they tell you when your birthday is, what your favorite color is, when you're going to meet your soulmate and what your ideal career is. So I think those kinds of, let's call them personality type quizzes uh-huh. are worth less than the paper they're written on. <laughs> Um, but there are real aptitude tests out there and I don't put a whole lot of stock into them, but there are real ones. Um, I, we did one when I was a senior in high school, we did the ASVAB, the, the armed services, vocational aptitude and battery test. They made all of the high school seniors at, at my school do this. And it was a genuine aptitude test. They, they, it was a series of subjects, topics, whether it was math ability, attention to detail things. I think there's some stuff on empathy, mechanical understanding, a variety of different topics. Some of the things you likely would have covered in school, some things you definitely wouldn't have and are only things you'd pick up in your normal day-to-day life. The idea was to get your skill set, like a an ability to score your aptitude uh, in, in a variety of different categories and then mash those together and say, what kind of jobs would you be good at with this set of skills? What kind of jobs would you be terrible at, right? If you stink at math and science, engineer is probably not in your future. Um, If you know that you stink at math and science, this test didn't tell you very much. Yeah, that's my beef with this kind of thing. I just feel like it would be impossible for a test to tell you something that you don't already know and something that's actually useful, right? So if you're struggling with math in school, you're probably not going to ace that part of an aptitude test and then your response will be sort of like a, well, thanks for telling me that. Kind of already knew. Or if you're, I don't know, very empathetic, which I really struggle to understand what those empathy questions would look like and get some sort of realistic response to that. <laughs> but, you know, that's, again, probably something that you already know. So I can't imagine that an aptitude test is going to be a very helpful thing. But what I do think would be really helpful is if kids got a much more thorough presentation of what kind of jobs are available out there. Because at least for me, when I was a kid, it was very much like, if you're a smart kid, you can be a doctor or a lawyer. This is totally arbitrary, but somehow this is the message that I got when I was a kid. And it's just completely ridiculous and narrow-minded. And I think it funneled a lot of kids, at least that I knew, into professions that they probably weren't particularly well suited for because there's this huge buffet out there of things you can do for money and we get an extremely myopic view of that as children. So I think what would be much more helpful is to present kids with like a, a tome, right? Like some huge book that says, here's all the things that you can do. And then if schools can even go above and beyond that and say, you know, kids who are interested in X, Y, Z, we'll try to put you in touch with someone who does that and you can actually talk to them. That kind of stuff would just be amazing, I think. I do think it'd be really fun to be the teacher of the class who goes through the Bureau of Labor and Statistics data and educates students about jobs and their distribution across the country, their expected growth pattern over the next couple of decades, the wages that you can expect to earn from those. 
what you need to do education-wise to be qualified for them. That'd be really, really interesting. Because yeah. I think I think there are jobs that people hear about that don't really exist very often that mm-hmm. are, you know, maybe interesting on a television show or movie, but aren't real in the real world very often, or certainly aren't going to be a very high paying job, or you need a boatload of education that may not be appealing for people. Um, that'd be great. It'd be really fun to be the teacher of a class where you get to educate people on that or the counselor who has as the responsibility. I have always said that I think school counselors do a terrible job of educating students about life options for them. Um, if we look at the number of people who go to college and study psychology, I think we know that people aren't always helping you link things that are interesting to you to productive life outcomes. And it, uh, it'd be wonderful if schools could do a little bit better job of that. Well, and I think part of that problem, so I think a psychology degree is a great one to focus on because there are really cool and interesting things that you can do with a psychology degree. But a lot of people don't realize that they go and they get it because it's interesting. And then there's like a disconnect between the classes that they thought were interesting and the jobs that actually might be a good fit for them. So yeah, I just think in general, both colleges, high schools, society in general does not have a great system of trying to get people into positions that are actually going to work for them. And I think these days we're seeing a lot of people job hopping more and more Um, And people are just not willing to settle as much as they were in the old days. They want something that's actually engaging and that fits their personality, right? So true. So really what we're saying is that the BuzzFeed quizzes are more important than an actual aptitude test. (laughs) I think that's the takeaway here. I think the real takeaway here has to do with the (laughs) whip-o-matic. Okay. You must whip it. (laughs) Good job, Devo. So... Lane seems to have a pretty one-track mind about what sales is. I think maybe she thinks this means she needs to be a door-to-door salesperson or somebody. Like in uh, an appliance store. Yeah. Picture going into the furniture store and there are the vultures just waiting there. And they're like in a line, in a queue to attack the next person who goes in the door. And they have to ask you if there's anything they can help you with. And you're like, just leave me alone. Like when I want to buy something up here, please. And in the meantime, can I just browse in peace without you trying to sell me something? Like, I have a lot of stores that I can choose from, and yours is not the only one. Please back off. That's part of why we like Ikea. There's very few salespeople at so Ikea. True. So true. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I think she has a very dated view of sales. I, I think of sales as a role where you're you're helping to bridge a relationship between two entities very often. There's a lot of business-to-business sales that happens out there. Exactly. Where there's education, there is, uh, co- there are commercial elements of large deals that have to be worked through, and there may be subject matter experts who do some technical portion of this business-to-business dealing, but you still need someone to work through the contracts and someone to go uh, facilitate the review process inside of their own organization. And you know, work to to connect and communicate with the different stakeholders so that what they're actually getting delivered is what they need and want. And that's, it's not some slimy, here's your whipomatic deal. It's a, it's a careful communicator who's able to understand subtle details and lead people through a difficult decision-making process. I, I don't know. I think it's a, a very respected position. Yeah, it certainly can be. There's some old axiom about every job is really a sales job. Yeah. And it, I mean, that's true, at least through a certain lens, right? I mean, if you're a school teacher, 
you're trying to sell your students on getting excited about your particular subject. Are you selling spelling? <laughs> Can I buy three? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Everyone should be better at spelling. No, it's uh, it's very true. You can pick almost any job and there's going to be some kind of a sales element to it. Certainly in my own field, being an attorney, there is a huge sales element to that, right? You've got to convince clients to buy your services. That is the act of sales. So really what Lane has there is an aptitude test that says you're well-suited to do a heck of a lot of things and she should be proud as heck of that. I will say, however, this clip kind of makes me bummed out because we get to see what Lane and Rory turn out to be in the A Year in the Life series that came out just a few years ago. Were they hanging in Paris? I they don't remember that. They were not having lunch in Paris talking about how great their lives were. Poor Lane. Her character just got the shaft in so many ways. She didn't get any of her dreams. She uh, basically just ended up being a stay-at-home mom, which is great for a lot of folks, but it is not what Lane wanted. And yeah, Rory is just a total disaster in every possible way. So it's nice to see them at this young and innocent moment when things are still rosy. Well, the underlying theme in this whole episode is this school project, right? That Rory reaches out to her grandfather, Richard, to be a part of. Uh, They come up with this cool idea or perceived to be cool. I'm not sure I think it's that cool. We'll talk about it. Uh, of a locker first aid kit that is customizable so you can make it super exciting for you. There are a bunch of different groups around the school who are doing this and they presented at a fair and believe it or not, Rory didn't win. And maybe this is what led her to those struggles later in life. <laughs> but I think we can jump to our next clip where we hear kind of the fallout uh, of Richard's thoughts about you know their unsuccessful bid to win this competition. Something wrong? This contest is a disgrace. I beg your pardon. I've been in the business world for 35 years. I know this. And in those 35 years, I've seen ideas come and I've seen ideas go. And I've learned a few things about what flies and what doesn't. I'm sure you have. And I am telling you that out there in the real world, there is no way that a locker alarm that doesn't even work properly would be a viable business investment. Richard, we're not in the real world. We are in a school. Yes, a school that should be training children for the real world. Richard, calm down. I demand a recount. (laughs) <laughs> he's fired Jeez, up yeah um i have to agree 100 percent with richard there's no way that a locker alarm certainly one that doesn't work would be worth anything in the real world because i i've been thinking about this I, this has kept me up at night several nights in a row like <laughs> how would a locker alarm work exactly like let's Let's think about the alarms we have in our lives. Okay, right? I'm ready. So there's like car alarms and home alarms. Those are pretty standard. And what ends up happening, well, with a car alarm, you unlock it and then it disarms the alarm. And if somebody opens your car without disarming it, boom, like it starts to go off and all kinds of crazy noise and it alerts everyone's attention that something bad is happening. Your home alarm, what normally happens is you enter the home. You have, I don't know, 30 seconds, 60 seconds to turn off the alarm And then it goes crazy and maybe it calls the police or whatever it's designed to do. That makes sense because there's a whole bunch of stuff in the house. You probably don't know where all the goodies are. You you can stop people pretty quickly with that. When you open a locker, by a locker, I'm talking about something that's like maybe, I don't know, foot wide, foot deep, six feet tall if it's a really big locker. (laughs) That's a huge locker. if you so you you get your combination lock, you, know, you twist it three times to the right, go around past the number once to the left, back again to the right, pull it down, open it up. Right. You open the locker, or somebody has some uh, you know uh, 
lock cutters who just breaks in, I don't know, some wicked dude, uh-huh. um, they can steal everything in that locker in like two seconds, right? Okay. Yeah, it's dumb. All it's right. the dumbest idea ever. No, I'm with you. Okay, here's another thing. Even if the alarm goes off immediately as soon as someone opens it, you're still going to have time to like grab a well, lot of things. If it goes off immediately as soon as you open it, it's going to go off whenever you open it and the alarm is going to be like always going off and everyone will ignore it. It's going to be mm-hmm. like a car alarm these days. Okay. No, I, you have it's convinced stupid. me. Okay. I am, I'm on board now. All right. While we're talking about dumb ideas, let's talk about this first aid kit because <laughs> um, we don't have this clip in our episode, but Richard grills the heck out of Paris. Paris is the annoying friend. Uh, who's in the group and she has this idea for this first aid kit and he's like I he just asks a bunch of tough questions and she has reasonable answers for all of them or at least you know if you don't think about it they're reasonable ish yeah and then in the end she says like I definitely think this could work and he says I think so too I think you have a winner here but no this is stupid like what high school kid is like man I really need a first aid kit what what he said in his argument is now Aren't there first aid kits and registered nurses in these schools all over the place? Like, why are you going to need to carry your own? Why are kids going to buy this expensive thing when they can get the materials inside for free, doled out by a licensed practitioner? Like, well, what? So I think the purpose here is just to sell kids something that's kind of flashy and cool, right? And that's her whole point is kids will buy anything if you slap a leopard print on it or like slap their favorite movie or band or whatever on it. So that's fundamentally a pretty solid but things piece that of they wisdom want. there. Like well, but, but kids, hold on. kids like flashy, fun, cute things. Yeah, they, they, they're happy to have a t-shirt that has their favorite band on it. Or if they have a, uh, a notebook that looks cool, whatever. Those, those things are great because they need them. A first aid kit. I mean, <laughs> I'm all about safety. Don't get me wrong, but... What high school kid is worried about a first aid kit? Yeah, well, it didn't win the competition, probably for a reason. Although I don't think the locker alarm should have beat it out. We don't know what any of the other products are. But this is inherently a good thing, I think, right? To get kids' creative juices flowing, get them thinking about like creating products and selling things in the real world. I think this is all great. But I don't think anybody came up with real winners here. And we should note, we have since looked to see if there's anything in the vein of a locker alarm or sort of like a tricked out cutesy first aid kit online. There's not a lot out there that really fits that description. No. So uh, it doesn't seem like anybody was like, oh, great idea and pounced on it and made this magic happen because I don't think there's a whole heck of a lot of magic going on there. Well, I have to say school projects, group projects in particular are kind of the worst. I hate the whole team environment where you get put in a group. There's always somebody who's shouldering way more than their fair share of the responsibility and other people are free riding who don't care as much. It just, it's a mess. And which one were you? Oh, Carla, it really depends on which team I was on. I would say most of the time I was somebody putting in more than my fair share of the work, but definitely in high school, there were multiple times when I was slacker. I was teamed up with people smarter than me who cared way more about school than I did. And I was happy to let them pull more than their fair share of the weight. But I think people say, oh, well, school projects are like the real world. You're always doing group projects and having to work well with other people. And the reality is that's BS. Yes, the world as an adult is full of group projects and full of things where you're on a team with other people. But you're not stuck with the, the 30 kids in your class, right? You have 
all of the people in the entire business world, right? Most people have the opportunity to change jobs if they don't like what's going on. If the team that they're on is crappy, they can leave their employer and go somewhere else, right? You can get yeah. a different job. Whereas in school, your grade may really matter to you because you may want to get admitted to a college or a graduate program or have a high GPA for uh, jobs that you're interested in. Like, yeah, the, the results matter more in school and you have less mobility. It's That's, ridiculous. I mean, projects you work on in your real career are also going to have like a serious effect on your life, probably more so than, than one grade you get in high school. But I... I think you're sugarcoating things a little bit here because, yeah, you do have the option to change jobs, but we shouldn't pretend that that's something you could do with a snap of your fingers, right? It takes a lot of effort to go find another job that is actually going to be a better fit, right? You hope it will be, but it's really tough to just eternally jump jobs until you finally find something that works. This is true. I guess what I mean is there's there's always a handful of people in your group or in your class at school who disappoint you, who you don't want to be teamed up with. In the business world, if there are people on your team who you think are terrible, well, one, you can communicate to the, that to their leadership. You can help them get better. You can move on yourself. Like there's so a lot that a you can do. Is what you're telling me? Basically, yeah. <laughs> like if if somebody stinks and can't get the job done, I want them all out of our team. They're dead weight for our business. They make my life harder and more miserable. And I I'm happy for them to go find a place where they can be at their best, not around me. Mm. I can't do that in the tenth grade. Fair enough. I can't argue with that part. Okay. What about school projects, though, as much as I hate them, sometimes they do turn into real businesses, right? Yeah, there are at least a couple of really famous examples of this happening where you've got kids who are in business school, typically, and they come up with an idea for a business. It's, you know, some sort of like description of a product idea, and their professor just completely shoots them down, says this is terrible, and then they go on to do it in real life, and it becomes wildly successful, So the example that I know of is FedEx. There was a business student who was taking his final exam and basically sketched out the idea for FedEx in that exam. He got a C on it, and of course FedEx is now FedEx. But you have another example that I know you want to talk about. Yeah, so one of my favorite places to eat because, well, I'm not a very healthy person, is Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers. They started in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I grew up, and uh, they've followed me around ever since. And it's probably good for them because I go frequent their establishment way more than any heart doctor would allow. But what is really fascinating is the guy who created it uh, was an LSU student. And I think there's signs about this in many of their stores. He was in some undergraduate business class where they had to come up with a business plan. And he had this idea of a restaurant that primarily serves fried chicken strips and fries and toast and some special sauce. And I think he did very poorly in this class. I think he also got a C on it. Well, turns out he decided to go start this business anyway. Maybe he learned some additional things in the class. Maybe the things that he was bad at weren't the uh, the overall idea, but maybe the execution, maybe his planning for likely revenues or yeah. costs or you know what he needed to work through were a bit limited. And maybe he learned a whole lot because they've got hundreds of Raising Canes around the country at this point. So that C has turned into, well... A lot of, a lot of dollars. <laughs> yeah, a lot of dollars, and a lot of uh, waistline expansions. Unfortunately, probably. Well, let's move on to our very last clip. So we've heard Richard getting very unreasonably upset about the results of this little competition they had, 
And I think that's clearly a symptom of how upset or how how much he's struggling with retirement. Yeah, his investment in this seemed disproportional to his like personal involvement. For sure. So he takes some time to kind of reflect on how much he's enjoyed working on this project and how invested he got into it and has a revelation about his life. This whole week, this whole experience with Rory and the locker first aid kit, that is a damn good idea, by the way, no matter what those yarn heads at that school of yours say. Anyway, this whole week made me realize something. I don't want to be retired. You what? I don't like it. I hate it, as a matter of fact. But Dad... It's boring. I have absolutely no idea what to do with myself. And frankly, I am tired of trying to find something to fill up my time. So what are you going to do? I'm going to work. Are you thinking about asking for your job back? Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. I have decided to go into business for myself. Wow. What? Cool. It is cool, isn't it? But what are you going to do? Well, I'm not sure yet. Perhaps I'll consult, maybe take on a partner. Maybe I'll even teach. What? Well, you don't have to say it like that. Sorry. What? <laughs> okay, hold on. Before we get into this, he says something about those yarn heads at your school. And, and yarn heads is not a term I've heard before. The way he uses it, it sounds like an insult. How do you feel about the term yarn heads, Miss Queen of Knitting? Personally affronted. That's how I feel. <laughs> no. do, do you, would you like me to call you a yarn head from here on out? Um, well, not if it's a bad thing. I assume what he's mean is like their heads are literally full of yarn instead of brains, which, you know, would not be. But isn't great. your head literally full of I mean, thoughts I dream of yarn? of yarn all the time, but okay. I don't, my brain isn't made of yarn, I hope. So, but yeah, I genuinely feel attacked by that and feel like he needs to take that back. <laughs> okay. Well, outside of that, I guess my my thought and summation for this uh, this speech he's giving is good for him. Way to go, Richard. I think you're making a brilliant call. You seem like you are really unhappy and just bouncing around. And if you're unhappy in your life, fix it. Yeah. Change is a beautiful thing. So I, I completely agree. I think he's making a great call. Um, I think at some point it's ideal for most people to be able to cut at least way back on their workload in life. But a lot of people just genuinely love what they do. And it sounds like Richard was one of those folks. Um, and he loves just the idea of getting up and having some challenge to tackle in the morning. So yeah, I think this is fantastic for him. Um, teaching seems like a reasonable thought for him. He, he mentions, um, potentially teaching at a community college where Lorelai took some business classes. And I think that would be a very good fit for him. It's also something he could probably do part-time if you chose to, which would be great. You know, he could continue to have a lot of flexibility, but feel like he was doing something purposeful. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people miss. We, we see working as a binary condition, right? You are either full-time, fully invested, like he was, traveling a bunch, doing some high-pressure work for high wages, uh, spending all of his free time thinking about his job, or not. And you're just fiddling with an antique car and moping around your old office wondering what you're supposed to be doing with your time. In reality, I think he has the opportunity for a nice blend, right? If he's going to be a part-time teacher, that sounds lovely. He could be a part-time business person and have a totally different work-life balance, still have the challenge and, and you know enthusiasm and vigor that comes with working on something that's very purposeful and meaningful to you, 
but also have the time to do that on some smaller side projects or maybe even ease into a retirement that he'll really appreciate a decade later. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are all great things. He's also in an incredibly fortunate position in life, right? Oh yeah. They got the money. They are super, super wealthy. I've seen various articles online discussing just how much wealth they probably had. A lot of folks seem to think it's somewhere in like the 20 to $50 million range. So they are doing a-okay. And Richard's salary as an insurance executive could have been certainly like in the high six figures, probably not the seven figures, but like the mid to high sixes for sure. I don't think that would be unrealistic at all. I've worked with a lot of people in the insurance industry and that wouldn't shock me. So he's certainly been earning a great salary and they are sitting pretty. And what an awesome place to be able to start a business from, right? You're, you're you're there, right? You are more than financially independent and you can afford to take some risks. So we are part of the Mile High Fi podcast network, right? And one of our network buddies is Alan Donegan, who puts out the... Rebel- and Katie Donegan. <laughs> yeah, who put out the Rebel Entrepreneur podcast. And their whole mission is to try to help people start businesses, do what they want to do with their life without following this sort of rigid method of setting up a formal business plan and then going and taking out a big loan to get a business started. Well, Richard Gilmore is in this perfect position where he wouldn't even have to think about that, right? He's never going to have to go take out a business loan, although it's always great if you can start a business completely from scratch, right? With very little capital invested, but he's got capital to invest if he wants to. So he can start a business and he also doesn't have to fret about bringing money in the door, right? He can do it just based on passion. That is so true. And when you are already retired, you have this huge degree of flexibility. If you are trying to raise a family and make enough money to put food on the table and pay the mortgage and keep the lights on, starting a business is daunting, right? If you struggle to bring the money in the door, you can't pull it off and you're going to have to backtrack and have a lot of disappointment. But Richard... I'm sure he wants to make money in whatever new business venture he goes after. But if he doesn't, as long as he doesn't lose money, who cares? Like he doesn't even have to make minimum wage, right? It's all about doing what he wants to do, helping people, whatever his goal is. That's fantastic. So it's, it's a position of power and strength that I think we forget about a lot. And it gives you the opportunity to be really creative. Yeah, absolutely. It's such an incredible place to be in, in your life. You're wearing your Camp Fi t-shirt. Uh, five standing for financial independence. And I think most people who have been part of this FIRE community, financially and financial independence retire early is what FIRE typically stands for. And I think a lot of people are realizing that it's just the FI part that we should be chasing, right? Nobody really, I, I think a lot of people feel like Richard, right? They get to a point where they could stop working, but they don't want to. They still want to chase things and they still want to get that adrenaline rush and they want to feel important and useful. So yeah, if, if all you're going to do is put your feet up on the coffee table and eat some Cheetos, you'll be like those people in that study you had where people are dying really early after retiring early. Yeah, no doubt. So I hope all of you out there listening will chase by, but maybe not necessarily the RE part of fire and figure out something fun to do with your own life that brings you meaning and and purpose and joy. And if you're a teacher, try to go easy on the group projects, huh? (laughs) 
And if you have a way of a locker alarm functioning that we are not thinking of, I really want to hear it. I would like to know. I am struggling to picture now that you've, you you made a good case that locker alarms are total trash. Yeah. I think it's a gimmick. Don't do it. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, all the engineers out there, put your thinking caps on, go invent a locker alarm and everybody else have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Take care.